If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Psalm 12. We'll finish up in the Psalms next week, and then after our college service, we'll start in the book of Mark. Psalm 12. To the choir master, according to the Sheminith, a psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boast. Those who say with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us who is master over us. Because the poor plunder, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Let's pray. Father, we turn our hearts to your word. Faith does come by hearing and hearing that of the word of the Lord. Father, I do pray that your word would be unpacked in such a way as to make it clear and plain what we are supposed to believe, where we are supposed to repent, where we are supposed to rest in the finished work of Jesus, and where we are supposed to offer and endeavor a new obedience by your spirit. Father, only you can do that, and my prayer is that you would do it through your servant, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you look at the Bible, there are moments where um, God sort of comes down, uh, so to speak, and makes a sober assessment of what he sees, and his heart is grieved. You see it early in Genesis when God says that man's heart is only evil continually, and God was sorry to his heart that he had created mankind. You see it again when you get to the Tower of Babel where God sort of has given this commandment that, that people are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, and he sort of comes down and kind of sees that, wait a minute, they're not filling the earth. They are gathering on this plain and building this edifice to, in essence, storm the gates of heaven. God was not pleased. You see it again with Sodom and Gomorrah where God is coming to Abraham, but as he visits Abraham, he sees and gets wind, and he already knows, but the way it's written, it's as if God is like going down to personally visit, and he gets to Sodom, and he sees what's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's set on destroying it. And at that point, you start to see that mankind also has this place in the Bible where we also start to take pictures and surveys. And so Abraham gets on his knees, and he just starts to pray and plead with God because of the evil that he hears about. You fast forward to Moses, who goes on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and he sees sort of what Israel has done, and, and they've made a golden calf, and, and he is about, I mean, he is just done, right? You see it again with Elisha, who is a prophet of the Lord, that he starts to groan and complain to the Lord, like, Lord, why has everyone bowed the knee to Baal, right? You see it with Jesus when he comes into Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, right? How I long to take you in as a mother hen under my wing, but, but you kill the prophets. You see it with the apostle Paul, where Paul sort of 
is sort of taking an inventory of where Jews are, and he basically says, I wish that I were cut off for the sake of Israel. Oh, that this veil might be removed. Uh, that is why they crucified the Lord of glory. That what you start to see is that when, when God's people and God's servants take sober assessments of sort of what they see, that it's normal for them to move to a place of despair. Have you been there? Where in your own life you look at your parenting and you take an honest assessment with, am I discipling them in the Lord? Am I modeling what it means to walk in faith and repentance? And if you're honest, you're probably like, man, that, that, that's some pain right there, that you might do this uh, with your marriage. You might do this with your finances, right? You think that you're in one place and you take an honest assessment of what's owed and what you have, and you're just like, man, am I ever going to get it together? You might do this for our country, right? That you might think that our country ought to be in a better and different place, and you look at it and you're sad. That posture is normal, right? And that's what's happening with David. David looks out upon his kingdom, and he's driven to despair over what he sees. And that's what I want us to think through. That's, that's sort of a way to think about the psalm is that he looks out and sees some things, and he's, it's a psalm of despair. Now, the question that we have to wrestle with is why, right? Why is David sad? Now, I think you can see his sadness or his despair in verses, uh, verse 1. He simply says, save us, O Lord, for the godly is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. And he goes on to use vocabulary like everyone does this, right? Is this hyperbole? Is this exaggeration? Maybe or, or maybe not. But we see that the, the tone of this psalm is that of sadness. Now, here's the question that I want us to think about. Why is David sad? Now, remember what we just talked about. All those bad moments when mankind's heart was only evil continually, when God saw what was happening with Sodom and Gomorrah, when all of Israel had bowed the knee and kissed a, a wooden statue of Baal, right? When the Jews crucified the Lord of glory, when Israel had made the golden calf, right? Think about all those times when, when God's people look into how people are behaving and their hearts are broken. Now, lay that on top of this psalm, and here's what you're not going to find in this psalm. You're not going to find adultery in this psalm. You're not going to find people bowing down to Baal in this psalm. You're not going to find the Jews crucifying the Lord of glory. And so the question that we have to ask is, well, why then are you sad, David? Why are you in despair? And, and the answer should surprise you. What causes his, his despair? It's with what people are doing with their vocal cords and their lips and their mouths and their jaw muscles, right? Their speech. Notice what it says. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue which makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is master over us. In other words, the reason for David's despair is through what he hears in Israel. 
It's their speech. It's their words. It's the way they're talking to one another and handling their words. Now, now, I think I'm going to be really honest, right? When I compare like Sodom and Gomorrah and like despair, and then I compare like speech and like tweets and news stories, right? When I compare like killing Jesus, what Paul has despair over, versus like speech, my temptation is to say, come on, man. Like, why are you being so sensitive? It's just words, right? It's just words, right? Reminds me of a, of a video. Some of you have seen it, and it was made back in 2002. It was when uh, Allen Iverson, who was the point guard for the Philadelphia 76ers, and he was being interviewed because word had gotten around that he was just not that committed. And so someone sort of asked him, hey, Rumor is that you don't go to practice, right? And man, like for like a, a minute and 20 seconds, he says practice about 100 times. I mean, if you've seen the video, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But in case you haven't, assume this reporter says, hey, rumor is that you don't come to practice. He says, like, practice? You talking to me about practice? Like practice. Like we're talking about practice. Have you seen the way that I play and lay it all on the line when the real game is here and you have the nerve to ask me about practice? We're not talking about a game here. We're talking about practice. Practice, 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 right? You've just heard the whole video. That, that is literally how it goes, right? Now, when you hear that, you probably have two responses. First, man, dude is like mad honest, right? He's like, look, bruh, I just don't think practice is important. You know, I'm Allen Iverson, right? The other side of that, though, is a part of you kind of cringes because you know that practice is important, right? And so you're like, man, you're a superstar. You're the team captain. You're MVP. And, and this is your attitude? That something that is of maximum importance is now negligent? Now, compare this to who I think is the greatest college football coach, his name is Nick Saban. And here's an interview. <laughs> Don't shoot me. Don't shoot me, right? We, we can debate it. Let's just see in about five years when we see how many championships he has, right? <laughs> you don't have to like him as a person. The dude is just a coach, right? Now, he was interviewed several years later. Hey, what's up with practice? These are his exact words. Practice is essential to the winning culture at Alabama, since I've been here at least. Practice helps our players learn their position, techniques, fundamentals, what to do, how to do it. It's where you learn effort, the discipline to finish plays. It's where we hone in on mental toughness so that you can contain composure when things don't go your way. Not to mention it's where we build team chemistry. Everyone has to assess, which you can only do at practice if you are a liability or an asset to this team. If you are a, a liability, you will not play. So you can't be casual about practice or how you approach it. I don't care how good of a player you are, what you've done in the past, how many games we've won, how many championships we've won. There is a standard, and every player on this team must step up, and it doesn't start in the game. It starts with practice. Now, casual approach to practice, uncasual approach to practice. 
Who's right? He got championships in the culture to prove it. Now, here's my question. When it comes to words and your speech, where are you? It's just words. I just said this. I ain't really do nothing, right? I didn't really hit him. I just told him I wanted to kill him, right? I didn't really hit him. I just said I'm going to beat the brakes off of you, right? You kind of get it? Or does every single word matter? Why is David so worked up about speech? It's because God is worked up about speech. His heart is broken over speech because God's heart is broken over speech. His heart is grieved over language and how people use it because God's heart is grieved over language and how we use it. What kind of God is this, right? What kind of God is this who isn't just against racial or or, or racist behavior, but who is also against derogatory racial speech? See, that's how you got to tease this out. It does matter what you call people. It does matter in the courtroom of God. It matters. I don't care what anyone else says. Right? What kind of God is this who cares about not just illicit sex, but the locker room talk and the talking about illicit sex? What kind of God is this, right, who cares about every single word that comes out of our mouths? It is our holy and righteous God. He cares. He sees. And he hears. Locker room talk. Barbershop talk, gossip talk, the scriptures say that he hears. Now, here's the question that we have to, the next thing is, why does God care so much about words and speech? Now, if you start with what humans have to say about words and speech, you will never get to the answer. But if we start with what God has to say about speech, and you will, If you notice in your bulletin, there's a reflection quote. You you can either read along with me. I know it's long, and I'm just going to read it. It's all good, right? It's by Paul Tripp. You don't really understand the significance of words until you realize that the first words that human ears ever heard were not the words of another human being, but the words of God. The value of every piece of human communication is rooted in the fact that God speaks. Into the sights and sounds of the newly created world came the voice of God, speaking words of human language to Adam and Eve. When God chose to reveal himself that way, he raised talk to a place of highest significance as his primary vehicle of truth. Through words, we would come to know the most important truths that can be known, truths that reveal God's existence and glory, truths that give life. As we seek to understand the world of human talk, it is vital that we understand it from the perspective of Genesis. The only time in human history when there was no war of words. In Genesis 1, the world of communication was a world of peace, truth, and life. 
Words were never used as weapons. Truth was never used to tear down. Words were always spoken in love, and human communication never broke the bonds of peace. Immediately after creating Adam and Eve, God spoke to them. It was his choice to reveal himself, to define his will, and to give identity to Adam and Eve by the means of human language. Now, let that kind of wash over you, because here's what he's saying. He is saying that, that you have to go back to the, to the beginning, that think about the world, that, that, that we believe in a God who created everything not with hands, but with words. In the beginning, God spoke. We believe, right, when God created Adam and Eve, that God named him. This is your name. And we believe that God talked with Adam and Eve and not at them. He talked planets into existence, but he had conversational language with Adam and Eve. And he told Adam, image me, image me, right? He told Adam, you now do what you've seen me do. I have created all of these animals, and guess what? I have not assigned a name to any one of them. Let me parade them down to you, and whatever you name them, that is what their name will be. And then God told Adam, it is not good for you to be alone. I will make a helper. That's the promise that God made. And then God goes and he keeps his promise and makes Eve. And he walks Eve down the aisle and presents Eve back to Adam. How did Adam respond? With words, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, right? Poetry at its finest, right? And then God says, don't just praise me like Talk to her, son. Have a conversation with her, son. She is yours, son. Like, go. She is yours. What do you want to call her? Oh, her name is Eve, right? That what you get in the beginning was this, the way that words are supposed to be meant, the way that they're supposed to be used. That we're breathing air right now, and that air is here because God spoke it into existence. We're sitting in the comfortableness of this place, and we're sitting on ground that he spoke into existence. That when you get back to the heart of human communication, what the Bible is saying is this is why words matter. Because God says they matter. Because God talks. And human speech is supposed to align itself with the purposes and plans of the Creator. And so our speech is supposed to give life. Our speech is supposed to encourage. Our speech is to be laced in truth. It's to be laced in love. Our speech is supposed to bring him glory and to bring him honor. Like, think about it this morning. You came in here this morning and you talked. Hey, good morning. How are you? I'm okay. I'm not okay. Right? Hey, honey, it's time to get up. I'm, it's time to go to church. You were greeted when you came in. You heard announcements from here that we sang songs, we put real words on a screen, and we set them, that prayers happen with real words, that by the time you leave here, you will hear me say 3,524 words to you. And all of this, God commands. Don't say words don't matter. They do matter. They matter. 
And when you lay God's theology of words and speech and communication on top of the words and speech and communication of Psalm 12, you're going to see the greatest divide imaginable. And that's what you see sort of in our, our third idea. You, you start to see sinful speech and the ultimate source that this is why David is grieved is because he sees the chasm between God's intention for language and speech and communication versus what he hears and sees in Israel. And that gap is so wide and it's crushing him. Now, here's what we see in Israel. How are they using their speech? He says in verse 2, everyone utters lies to his neighbor, right? Lies, no truth. That is, a, that is completely opposite to God who spoke truth. That is completely opposite to God who spoke for the good of the neighbor, for his people. Now you have his people lying to their neighbor. It says that their lips are flattering, that they're smooth talking. Their tongues, they make great boasts. They're prideful. Look at verse 4. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. You ever met like a smooth, slick-talking person that can sell you something you already own, right? Just smooth with it. Got a mouthpiece on them, right? That's what David says. I, I see it. And look at what they say. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? That is, that is I mean, think about that. Our lips are, they're, they're my lips. I can use my mouth like I want to use my mouth. I can say what I want to say to who I want to say, how I want to say it. That is the exact opposite of God who is the Lord of your tongue, right? This is rebellion at its finest. And the question that we have to wrestle with is where is this coming from? You see, I'm convinced that bad speech, whatever that might be in your kind of own way that you're broken in that way, that it's symptomatic of something else that's divided. It's our hearts. And that's why you see what David says right there in verse 2. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Double hearted. It literally means with lip and with a lip of smoothness, with a heart and another heart they speak. These people have two different hearts kind of going on. Their flattering words are projecting something, but their real heart is filled with evil thoughts and destructive intentions. The heart that is seemingly displayed through their words is far different than what's going on in their real heart. In the end, the real problem is not just the words. And so if you think the real solution to the problem is just don't say bad words, we're not getting to the heart of the issue. We say bad words because we have bad hearts. We gossip because our hearts are bad. We, 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 we do crude joking because our hearts are bad, right? That the real issue is the heart. ESPN did a follow-up to that video that, that Alan Iverson did when he said the practice piece. They just kind of had this inkling that there was more to that story than what the public is aware of. And you know, they were right. 
that after doing some research, they discovered that, one, he was probably uh, had been drinking. And Larry Brown, his coach at the time, and other players kind of confirmed that. But here's what was happening beneath the alcohol. That one year prior to that video, he was three wins away from defeat, from, from being world championship, world champions. They lost to Kobe and to Shaq, but they ran through the Eastern Conference and they were in the finals playing against the Lakers. And so there was all this talk about Philadelphia. They will make the run again next year. Allen Iverson, if he had had a little help, they would have won, right? That was kind of the talk. And here's the thing. You fast forward to the night of that interview, they barely finished above 500. He was on the, the, the brink of being traded, and his best friend had been murdered. And the court case for his best friend that had been murdered was about to start a week after that interview. And so there's a sober side to that story that we don't see, and it didn't go viral, but it was a broken man. And here is what he said, and ESPN tracked this down. I'm upset because I'm right here. I lost, and we aren't in the playoffs, and I lost my best friend. Everything is just going down here for me as far as my life is concerned. My best friend is dead, and we lost, and this is what I have to go through for the rest of the summer until the season starts again. You hear what's happening? Beneath what he said, family, it was a brokenness. Things weren't right. And what we heard come out was symptomatic of something else that was deeply disturbing and going on. He was in a hard place. And here is what I will say to us. Behind all of our speech, something is dangerously wrong. More is going on beneath the surface. We've lost more than a friend. We've lost more than a season. We've lost more than the trust of a coach. We've lost our original righteousness. And every sinful word is a reminder. You aren't right. Your heart isn't right. And therefore, your speech isn't right. And the sad thing is that we lost our righteousness through words. Think about it. How did Adam and Eve fall from the estate that God made them? It was because they ate of the tree. He told them with his words not to. Who interfered? With God's promises, it was Satan, the serpent. And what did he do? Did God really say this? You will surely not die. God knows that you will be like him if you eat. He is hiding from you. In other words, make the connection 
The war between words is a war of who will be Lord. And what we see that we have shown that because we're in Adam, that we have sided with the enemy. And through the words of the serpent, mankind is in the state that we're in. And so when our words start to not look like the words of the Savior, you know whose they look like? The serpent. The one who was a liar and a murderer and a thief and one who contests what is righteous and good and holy. And we have to read this psalm two ways. On the one hand, we have to read it and we could say, man, maybe I should be like David and be grieved when I hear this kind of talk, right? When I see these tweets and go into the barbershop and hear all of this stuff, a mark of maturity is grief. Like it grieves me to hear you talk in this way. That's one way to read the psalm. But the other way to read this psalm is that you're not the king looking out over Israel, hearing the bad talk coming out of their mouths. The other way to read the psalm is you're out in Israel, And if someone put a tape recorder on you and it stayed with you, just your words, not even your thoughts, but if it stayed with you week in and week out and we played it right here, what would be on it? If we had a tape that that, that, that can get everything you've ever said and we play it right here in front of the assembly of the Lord, where would we be, right? We would be embarrassed. So let's just stop pretending, right? Some foul stuff that came out of this mouth, right? That this psalm, we're guilty. That, that, that why is it that we can be patient and tender and respectful to an employer and lose it on our kids? Now, when you dig into the heart, we know why, right? Because we know the answer is, well, you know, I got to feed these kids, so I got to keep a job, right? So I'm going to go there, and I'm going to talk, and I'm going to say, and I'm going to stay in line. Okay, so let's get it right. The money is enough to motivate you to be holy at work, but not the Lord, right? I'm talking to me too, right? Why is it that we can be more forgiving and tender with a friend. We're at a new school, and we, we want to sort of fit in and make friends. And so we're, we're delicate and, and, and measured with our words. We won't say too much to offend. We want to fit in, and then we go home and let little brother or little sister have it. Why? So let me get it right. You, you, you have made an idol out of befriending strangers. Why is it, right? Now, we can come in here and use polished English, And just, you know, talk the good talk. And man, if we go home and people heard how we would talk, it's like, is this the same person? I'm talking about me. Why do I, your pastor, opens up the word faithfully. Hopefully I speak to you with grace and tenderness. If I've wronged you, hopefully I ask for forgiveness. But why do I just take off the reins when I walk in the door of my home? 
and I've thrown bombs at my wife and my daughter and my son because I'm broken. And if you're honest, so are you. That's the war of words. Who will be Lord over our speech? The last thing I want us to think through is what happens, right, when we sort of are unbridled with our speech and use words in a way that doesn't sort of align with the Lord? What happens, right? And here's what we're going to see. We're hurt by man's words and healed by God's. You see it in verse 5, like, like, like what's the effect of the lying and the pride and the boasting and the double-heartedness and, and, and this lordship over my own tongue? What's, the, what, what's happening because of it? Look at verse 5. The poor are plundered and the needy groan. That's the effect of a lying, dishonest, misspeaking society. People are hurt. And notice, they make a noise. It says they groan. And when they groan, right, the Lord arises. I will arise now. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Here's what you're starting to see, that the effect of our So our hearts are like these bomb-making factories, and our lips, that's what hurls them. And they land on someone, and they hurt people. That's what the psalmist is saying. And here's the thing. We are both those wounded by words. Let's be honest. I'm not the only one guilty in my house, right? I've been wounded by words, and I'm a wounder. And if you're really honest, that's, that's your lot. You've been hurt by bombs thrown, thrown at you, and you've been the one throwing the bombs. And Tim Keller, Tim and Kathy, has this devotion on Psalms, and he says, words have an enormous power not only to wound us, but to train us to respond in kind. Left unchecked, we will be awakened to the power we have with our own words. Hurt people will then hurt people, Right? Where's the, where's the healing in this? The gospel heals us. What if you're over here? That you're the wounded, right? And you've been verbally abused or verbally challenged or words that have come towards you or at you, and they hurt you, right? That that's one of the sad things about working with verbally abused people is that all they hear is, think about this, this, this stereo, that the volume is on 10, and what they're hearing is, you're nothing, 
you're no good, you're not smart enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not wise enough, you don't make enough money. I mean, you just hear this, you're not enough, enough, enough. And that volume gets on 10. And it doesn't matter if you go and get a degree, right? It doesn't matter if you get married, right? It doesn't matter if you go on and prove this other person wrong. The volume is still there. And it's still, you hear it, you hear it, and you hear it. And you find yourself on this rat race trying to prove to this person who might even be dead now that, no, I am enough. I am enough. And you're on the treadmill and you get tired. And here is where the gospel breaks into that cycle. You know what David prays? He says, Lord, shut their mouths. Cut off their their, their flattering lips. Shut them down. In other words, what David is actually praying is like, Lord, turn the noise down. And here is what the gospel does for you. If you are on this side of being wounded by words, the gospel says to you, you cry out to your Lord and he himself will arise and he will hear your groaning. And his words are like silver purified seven times and he will bring you into the safety of himself and he through the gospel will turn their noise down. And you know what noise he turns up? Your mind. You are enough. You are beautiful. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. And you are this because I say you are this. And who can bring a charge against God's people? No one. Because he has the final say And your Savior has won that for you. And so when David talks about these words of the Lord that are pure, what he's really saying, family, if you're in in, in Jesus Christ and you've cried out and you're just in despair because of the noise and maybe the bombs are coming at you, what David says is you have the right. Block that out. Turn to this word right here. And see what your father says about you in Jesus. And that is what is lasting. The healing comes from the gospel. And what if you're on the other side of the equation and you're the abuser and you just, you just can't control your mouth and it's hard and you feel this stuff welling up and you lose it and you blow it? You know what? The Lord's going to shut somebody else's mouth. And his name is Jesus. See, we believe that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word took on flesh and, and, and became a man, right? And we have seen His glory. We believe that, that the Father has spoken from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. And we believe that if you watch the life and character of Jesus, He always used His words in a way that were honoring to the Father. He spoke truth and peace. He withdrew to silence so that he could speak words and prayer to his father. 
that in all of the billion ways that a person can use their mouth, what we see in Jesus is that he is the only person to have ever walked this earth who can make the claim that I have used my mouth and my speech in a way that mirrors with the Father. And then something beautiful happens. Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own ways. And so if you're like a cussing sailor, right? That's just your lot, man. You just, I don't know for whatever reason, that's just you, right? And God says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us to our own ways. And yet God has laid our iniquity on him. And the rest of that passage says, he was oppressed and afflicted, and he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before her shearers are silent, he did not open his mouth. Why did he not open his mouth? Because he was becoming accursed, and the Lord was shutting his mouth, and he was bearing the guilt of all of your verbal iniquity upon himself. And he went to a cross and he died in your place. The Lord shut him up and the Lord shut him down that he might raise you up and pour his spirit out in you and his spirit enable you as a new man, new woman, new child to use your mouths like that of your maker. Only the gospel will do this. If you leave here and think that I'm going to put a bridle on my tongue and just get my life together, you're lying already. But if you believe that through faith and repentance and the divine help of the Spirit, and as this word right here, which is pure, it comes over us, and it fixes our minds like, man, I didn't know that words are that important. That is exactly how God wants you to feel when you leave here. That's what He wants you to feel, and He wants you to feel by your grace and with your help, we can do this. That's my prayer, Redeemer, is that we will be a church known for measuring our words, known for encouraging one another, known for letting this gap between who we want to be when we relax versus who we are in Christ. We're closing that by the Spirit, right? So that I'm the same person up here as I am when I'm at home. Isn't that the goal? That we don't have to wear masks and pretend? Isn't that the goal? That we will be more conformed to the image of Christ. And today he says, I want your tongues. And he has it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I do pray that you would indeed uh, make us a people who use speech and language in a way that images you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.